desire that the Lord would richly bless everyone present here this morning, also anyone that might be listening in. God has a banquet for us if we have prepared our hearts for it. This morning I have a topic that uh, I know is one that has gripped my heart for years. And I believe it's uh, looking at one of uh, heaven's best kept secrets. And it's bringing a lot of things together that if you can't grasp everything this morning, some of these concepts we're bringing together, I, I just challenge you to study this topic for yourself. There's there's a lot there, tremendous lot. Uh, but looking at the core of the new covenant, what it consists of, and the power of the gospel, the message of the church of Jesus Christ, power behind the salvation message, and uh, the topic title is The Promise of the Father. And I think Christ's parting words before he ascended up in glory, are they not what was closest to his heart right before he left the disciples? We'll look at several of those. I have already looked at the all four Gospels and also Acts. But uh, this morning, I think, for uh, time's sake, we'll just look at Luke chapter 24. It says in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until... Ye be endued with power from on high. And so he, we see here the, the, the purpose of the resurrection, and we'll look at that some more when I tie that together here this morning, resurrection message, as it's put into shoe leather of how it should work in the church of Jesus Christ, his body. And I, I had this thought, maybe it's for us to grab a hold of it, so you've got this, this vehicle, and it's got a thousand horsepower underneath that hood. But if there's no transmission in it, there's not any of that power going to get to the wheels where it's going to do any good. And so this is the message that Christ had for his church, not just for the disciples, but for his disciples that are working and operating in 2021. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, 
For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Jumping down to verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so now going back to where we started out this morning, uh, Brother Andrew took us there, and some people maybe have a little bit of a struggle with treading other people's territory. I don't look at it that way. I believe that if the Lord is leading through the Holy Spirit, he can direct and prepare just exactly how he wants. And you can look at one passage, and one person can look at it and get something out of it, another person gets something completely different out of it, and both are absolute truth as God is leading us. And I'm not going to look at the whole thing here uh, that Andrew looked at. Uh, it would be beneficial. But I have here in a margin written the resurrection message, of verse 31 to 34. And seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, and his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus who God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he saith of himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. And so as far as as the reality of things is, is concerned, where Christ ascended up on the day of ascension at the right hand of the Father, he's still there. But for practical purposes of the church, Peter makes it clear that the, which you have seen, that what happened there on the day of Pentecost is a result of, of receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and shedding it forth and and enabling, empowering the church for, for what it needed to do. And Jesus specifically told them they should tarry, they should wait, they should not go out and preach until they be endued with power from on high. And they could have disobeyed that. So it's time to get out there and, and get this work done. And the difference that would have resulted from that. And so there's some challenging things for us this morning, and I'm not sure if I have all the answers. Like I said, this has gripped my heart for years, and I've looked, and from all the angles I could look at it and, and have studied this whole topic of the promise of the Father and, and how it relates to us, and uh, that's what the Lord wants for us to know this morning. And I don't know if I understand completely, but... We trust God can lead us. I'd like to go now to Galatians chapter 3. This is a passage, I think, that ties together this whole theme of the promise of the Father uh, in many ways. There's, there's a lot of other scriptures. That it's, uh, I, as we're looking for Galatians chapter 3, uh, start at verse 14, I'd just like to mention here that in the New Testament, I don't have it written down, I think maybe 50, sometimes you find the word the promise or, or promise or, or promises. Where you find the word promise, if I'm not mistaken, everywhere except for in uh, Ephesians 6, 
where it talks about the promise of the children that obey their parents in 1 Timothy 4 and also uh, a few references in 2 Peter that's not related to the promise. But in the New Testament, all the rest of the scriptures, uh, when it talks about a promise, is talking about the promise. We know there's lots of promises in scriptures. God has promised many things to us as his believers. But this morning we're not looking at all those. We're looking at the promise, the promise of the Father. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come unto the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance of the law, it is no more of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then before the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which should, which could have given life, verily righteousness could have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. I'm going to stop reading there. So we have the word promise here numerous times, and we also have the word covenant, and this uh, hope we can understand this, that it's used interchangeably. The covenant that God made, the promise that God made, they're interchangeable. So if we, we look at the, the covenant of God or the new covenant, the New Testament, and let's see the core of it is centered around the promise. And also we see here that the promise was made to the seed, not seeds, but seed, singular, and it says clearly that that promise was made to Christ. And uh, as I understand it, and you can look at this, and, and if you see it different, I, I'd be glad to hear from it, but the promise that was given to Abraham, and we were going to look at that just a little bit, uh, was given to his seed, and it was, I think, Christ understanding that this promise was for him, and he secured that as he went down to the Jordan and was baptized and the Spirit came upon him as a, in, the, in the form of a, of a dove. And so we see that there Luke says that as Christ was praying, the heavens were opened up. And what was he praying for? Personally, I believe that he had an understanding that this was for him and he secured that. And, and what we see from there, it says in Luke that he being full of the Spirit was led into the Spirit, uh, 
by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days as he fasted there. And also when he was faithful in that temptation, he came back full of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that he opened the scriptures there, Luke 61, where he read about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me. We have the, the fulfillment of the Messiah, the anointed one that was fulfilled there. And the life that we see from there on was the life of the anointed one, the promise that came upon him as he received it of his father. Now, as we understand it, and, and you can look at um, John 7, where Jesus talked about the rivers of living water. He said that was not yet available because Christ was yet not yet glorified. And what I read this morning was the fulfillment of the promise of the Father that Christ had already received was now available for his disciples. And when we have the promises, as we have here uh, in verse 21, it's not talking about, uh, in verse 16 also, about something different. It's talking about the number of times it was given. And we can, I'm not going to be able to take time this morning. We'll just look at a couple of them. But I think this promise was given at least five times to Abraham himself. And that promise was again repeated to, to Isaac. And it was again repeated to Jacob. And it was again repeated to Moses as he sent the, the spies out to, to check out the land of Canaan. And so I want to look a little bit as we see the blessing of Abraham or the promise that was given to Abraham and just how that all ties together for us here this morning in Genesis chapter 12. And I would like to mention that, as I understand it, every time that God came to Abraham with a promise, it was with a little more revelation, a little more understanding what it was all about. So we have there in Genesis 12 where... The Lord came to Abram, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of the country, thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay, so God asked Abraham to leave where he sat, and he has a special plan for me as wants to use him to bless all the nations of the earth. And then we have in Genesis 15, and I'm not going to read that, but God came to Abraham again, and Abraham was a little puzzled because he did not have any children. And then we have in Genesis 16, it's not God bringing the promise, but where where Sarah came to him and said, you know, nothing's happening. We've got to get this thing going. We're supposed to have a great nation, so why don't you just go to Hagar and we'll get this thing done. We'll talk about that some more. And then in, in uh, Genesis 17, we have God coming to him again and, and just revealing more of his covenant and making it clear that it was not to be through Hagar. It was to be through Sarah that, that they would have this child. And so in Genesis 18, we have the angels coming and, and a time of, around the conception of, of uh, Isaac. 
Then in Genesis 22, I wanted to read that again. And this, the, the context of this was when God asked Abraham to offer Isaac, the, the, the child of promise. He was to offer him up. And, and the scripture says in Hebrews that God, or that Abraham believed that even if he would have carried through with the, the offering of, of Isaac, that God would have been able to raise him from the dead. That's the type of faith that Abraham had. So he's willing to go through with this. Because God had told Abraham that it was through Isaac that this nation should be. And so maybe it didn't all make sense to Abraham, but he was obedient. And in verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, that because thou hast done this thing, hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And so we see here the, the, maybe the most clarity of, of, uh, of the promise, and that one of the, I think it's in Genesis 15 that I overlooked, that there was a, a second part of that promise, and that was he was going to give his seed or his offspring the land of Canaan. And so for us this morning to bring these three things together, I'd say there is a three-phase fulfillment of the promise. Phase one, God had promised Abraham a son. There's no way he's going to have a great nation unless there's offspring, unless there's a son. He had promised that. And then phase two, that God had promised that uh, his children, his offspring, would inherit the land of Canaan. And that, uh, that the time of that promise was 400 and some years later till that was fulfilled. And then the third phase, that in his seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And that's uh, the part we want to especially look at here this morning. But I want to look at a little bit more at phase one and phase two because I think it can help us understand how we uh, lay hold of phase three, if that can make sense here this morning. So phase one is that God had promised to Abraham that he was to have a son. And I'd like to just turn to Romans 4 a little bit and, and here again, if you had time later on, you could look at all of chapter 4 and see just how this thing worked for Abraham in order for him to have a conception through his wife Sarah and that uh, the son would be born. I think we'll break into about verse 13 here. Romans 4.13 For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, and where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. 
who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when it's about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So what we see here, especially in verse 17, that the faith that was necessary for the conception to take place was that he believed something that was not yet. With faith that says before him that whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Things that be not as though they were. That's the faith of Abraham. And, and if we would look in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that through faith, Sarah received strength to conceive. And so the only thing that could make this thing happen is that Abraham and Sarah both would believe that God cannot lie and that what he promised is going to happen against all human uh, reasoning and all human uh, understanding that was an impossibility. But because it was God that had promised and he had sworn, then they believed the promise and because they believed the promise, he came into reality. Now, going back to Genesis 16, I'm not going to read it. Many of us are familiar with it. So it was actually Sarah's idea, and Abraham went along with it. So Abraham, uh, my way of saying it is that it was a human effort to try out, try to carry out the plan of God. And then there's, there's something there for us, a human effort. And there's two different places in Scripture where it mentions this in Romans 9, and I'm not going to turn to that. There again, you can study Romans 9, but not all of Abraham's seed was of the promise. And then in, in Galatians 4, there's a lot there, and I was contemplating whether I should look at that this morning. I think I'm going to pass because of what else we want to cover, but there's an allegory there that Ishmael was born to a bondwoman, and that was likened to Mount Sinai where the Old Covenant was given. The Old Testament was given Mount Sinai and it was born of a bondwoman, born under the law. And uh, there's prophets there that cast out the bondwoman with her son because he cannot inherit. And inheritance is to those that receive the spirit after Isaac. The promise of the Spirit. And there again, like I said, we're bringing a lot of concepts together this morning, and, and please study it because there's, there's a lot there for us. And then we can be, in a spiritual sense, trying to gender offspring, and it can be through our own human efforts and being like under the law and, and gendering Ishmael's rather than Isaac's. And think about that. And so, isn't it ironic that Ishmael's offspring, as I understand it, the, the Arabic nations, how they took to Islam, and how much Islam parallels to law. You just study the whole religion of Islam and how much law is there. 
and how strong those people are in, in following the law and how radical they are. And, and that's coming from Ishmael, which was something that I wondered whether it really was God's plan at all that Ishmael should be. And we can let that where it's at because we can speculate on that for a long time. But just look, read at what Galatians 4, uh, the allegory that's there, there's something tremendous there. And uh, also the context of Galatians, almost the whole book of Galatians, especially chapter 3 where he's paralleling being uh, heirs of the promise versus being under the law. And the problem with the Galatian church was they had received the heir of the promise and they were wanting to revert back to being under the law. You study that book. And that's, that's what Paul is addressing when he's addressing the Galatians there. And so just because the promise is available to us in the New Testament heir doesn't mean that we're living under the promise. If you can uh, capture that. So moving on now to the second phase, and we could read there when Stephen is witnessing to the, uh, the people there just before his uh, martyrdom, he talked about the prom time of the promise drawing nigh, and it was a time when, when they were in bondage in, in Egypt, and they were to leave that bondage. They were to enter into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And uh, here again, you can read Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 where those 12 spies were sent out and uh, where they came back and they disheartened all the people. They said, it's impossible. There's, we're like grasshoppers and there's giants over there and, and the land is great, but we can't have it and we need to turn around and head back to Egypt. Here again, there's some tremendous parallels there and, and this is a staggering thing that I want us to capture this morning. There were 600,000 grown men that left Egypt, and they had all received the promise of the Father, the promise of, of, of Canaan. Out of those 600,000 men, 500 and... I don't have the numbers here. 599 and 998 okay, did not go into the promised land. 600,000, two men inherited the promise. Why? What was the difference between those two men and the 600,000 that did not go in? It's very simple. Two men believed God and the rest did not. Because if you read there uh, in, in uh, Numbers 13, and these people probably were aware of the promise that God had made to Abraham back there in Genesis. But in, in in Numbers 13, God says clearly, go spy out the land that I give you. God had promised them that land. Now, was God lying when he promised that land to them or was, there, was, there, was it for them? And you, you just look at Caleb and you look at Joshua and those two men say, let's go up there. God has said it's for us and, and, and he's going to help us and we're going to conquer these nations. Let's go to Hebrews a little bit, tying, tying some things together here. Hebrews chapter 3. 
the promise is mentioned numerous times here in Hebrews, and it, it's always referring to the same thing, if I'm understanding it right. I'm going to read here Hebrews 3, verse 7, and on down. There's a lot in Hebrews 3 and, and 4, and also Hebrews 6. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err in their heart, for they have not known my ways. So I swear my wrath that they shall not enter into rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Jumping on down to verse 17. But with whom was he grieved forty years? It was, was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, to whom he sware, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise or the promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So here again, it's referring to what happened there in Numbers 13 when they refused to believe and God swore in his wrath that they would not enter into rest and their, their bodies fell in the desert. They did not enter in the land of Canaan. So it's likening the land of Canaan or entering into rest. That the rest was after they would conquer the, the tribes there, but there's much more in it. And it's also, he, the Hebrew writer ties in the uh, works of God that God had entered into his rest after six days. So the work that God had done, he had finished and, and there's nothing more left to do. And I, I think there's a parallel to that here this morning where we, as we feel like we have this commission, we have this, this charge, we think somehow we have to add to what God has already given and, and, and somehow help God along in getting this thing done rather than entering to rest. And, and some people would apply the rest here to, to our eternal Canaan, and I think that's fine to do that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because in verse 10, it says, For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. In verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, what kind of paradox is that? To labor to enter into rest. So we should labor to not labor, or we should strive to not strive. What, what's the scripture talking about here this morning? Well, when we look at the promise of the Father, I think it makes sense. The disciples, they were trying, they're wanting to follow Jesus, and they're trying to do it, and they're, they're, they're coming up short. And what they're supposed to be doing, they weren't always being very effective. Jesus went up there to be transfigured, and he came down, and his disciples could not do and re what, what they were supposed to be doing, and Jesus rebuked them for that. There was a, someone that was uh, under the 
bondage and power of the devil and they could not do anything about it. But we know that changed when, when Jesus went up and he sent the promise of the Father how, how powerful they were to carry out the work of God. And so the striving is the right kind of striving that we need to look at this morning. It says to strive to enter into rest. And we want to look at what the example of the apostles was for that. So now we see that phase three was that through the seed of Abraham, this was a man, through this man, Jesus, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And let's look at a verse here in, in uh, Acts chapter three that ties some of that together. Acts chapter three, the context here is where the lame man was there at the, the gate of the temple and he was healed and this caused quite a stir, and then Jesus, uh, Peter used that as uh, the foundation for a message he preached there. And uh, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he said, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. And then jumping on down, verse 23, and it shall come to pass that every soul which shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, In thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So now we're tying these things together. The promise of the seed of Abraham, the blessing, the blessing is that people turn away from their sins. And the blessing for us is we already have, have experienced the, the, the power of God in our lives, that our lives be used in, in, as instruments that others could be turned away from their sins. That's that's the blessing of of the seed of Abraham, that people be turned, every one of them, from their sins, their iniquities, and that that is the work of the church, and that is the work that that uh, Christ commissioned his disciples. So the commission that was to be carried out. Now coming to 2021. How do we look at the promise of the Father? Do we have the promise or do we not? And if we conclude that we have it, do we have it in the sense that it was portrayed there in the early church? And if not, why not? Was that just for then or was it what God had given from there on out? If you look at what, Jesus, what Peter had to say there in Acts 2, uh, Verse 38 and, and through 40, And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children, and to all that afar, are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this onto our generation. 
the promises unto you and your children and to them that are far off, even as many as the Lord shall call. This morning I repeat the, the question that I said, are, you, are we endued with power from on high? And we need to be, or we can easily revert back to being like Abraham trying to get the work of God done through Hagar. And that wasn't the way God wanted. Or looking at the children of Israel there in the wilderness and, and really in, in a, a human perspective, they were right. There is no way they could enter into Canaan and conquer those people. It had to be through a supernatural power. Now, when Jesus gave them those, that commandment, we know that Ascension Day was 40 days after the resurrection, and we know that Pentecost was 50 days, and so we have 10 days in between. And he told them to go and tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. What did they go and do? There was 120 people, and they were assembled up in the upper room, and they said they were all together in one accord, and they were praying. What were they praying for? What did they receive? We know what they received. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now, I'd like to say when the Holy Spirit works with power, it's not always with the same manifestations. Just because there's not a mighty rushing wind here this morning, we, I can't conclude that, that that we don't have the promise of the Father or that we're not speaking in tongues as they were there in that situation. But one thing that I would like to underline that I believe with all my heart, the power that was there to get those souls converted, the work that needed to take place, the power was there to get it done. And that's the core of what I want to, want to focus on this morning. So we have this thousand horsepower engine and it's up there in heaven. How are we going to get it to the wheels where we can take that thing down the track in, in how many seconds? And I'm not into drag racing, don't get me wrong. But there's power. And Jesus said, you shall receive power. You shall receive dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite. And that word dunamis simply means power. It means force. It means miraculous power. And as you receive that power, you receive power to be witnesses. Receive power to preach with convicting power. Receive power to do what Jesus said he was anointed to do back in Luke chapter 4, as he quoted Isaiah 61, where people are in bondage, where people are blind, where people need help, and there's power there to do it. And the church needs that power as much as it did in the day of Pentecost. As we're getting very close to the end of the end, how much more does the church need it today? And this is a quote I read from somewhere, I'm not sure where it was from. It said, superhuman and complex obstacles stand in the way of evangelizing the world. And we know that. So we're talking about needing something that can rise above those superhuman and complex obstacles. And any of you that have been involved with missions and involved with the, 
this desire to be used in discipleship understand these things. But maybe we haven't always taken as serious as we could that there's some power available that we haven't tied into. And I, I've, I've shared it with this way already. My concept of leaving, so you have this huge iceberg and, and it's just it's huge. And you see just this tiny little block of ice. But there's a lot more there. And I, I think when, when we look at the, the promise of the Father, that's, that would be my interpretation of it. That there's, there's a tremendous something there and I, I know it's there and I see it and I see what it has done but I've experienced a lot less than I think could. And so that, that can give you some food for thought here this morning. Only God can provide the dunamis that is needed. But, on the other hand, as I, I was at the week of meetings here, the other week I, I went back to this thing that this thing of revival is a thing of cause and effect. It's not some kind of miracle that's just going to drop out of the sky, but when, when God's people do the, the cause thing, then the effect is always going to be consistent. And so I have this, another quote, and here again I have it written down. I'm not sure where I got it. Go back, back to the upper room, back to your knees, back to the searching of heart and habit, thought life, back to pleading, praying, waiting, till the Spirit of the Lord floods the soul with light and you be endued with power from on high. Then go forth in the power of Pentecost, and the Christ's life shall be lived, and the work of Christ shall be done. Open the eyes of the blind, cleanse foul hearts, break men's fetters, and save men's souls. Isn't that the work that has been commissioned to us as God's people? But one of the main cause things I see here in, in, in the start of the book of Acts is there was 120 people that were one accord and they were praying. They were praying that they would receive what Christ told them that they should wait for. And they did. And they went forth. And, and there was, out of those 120, even out of the 11 disciples that were there, you, you just imagine how, many, how, how much they impacted the world. You, you read in, in uh, Martyr's Mirror, this, this is a part of, of the apostles and what they did in preaching the gospel, and you'll stand amazed. That, that power, that, that promise, sometimes maybe it, it, it faded out, and they realized that, and they had to come back, and they, they received it anew, and, and they were endued with power from on high. And when, they, when the church is endued with power from on high, then the work of the church will happen. I'll call for a song at this time.